This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have an extra special guest. His name is David Hunt, and he is president and CEO of PGM, which could be the largest asset manager that you are unfamiliar with. Uh, they manage $1.2 trillion, uh, and they are the 10th largest asset manager in the world. PGM has a really fascinating business model. Uh, they are a variety of different uh, groups that have a very, very long history in the world of asset management. Uh, they've been around over 100 years. Their quantitative group dates back to 1975. It, it could be the oldest quant group uh, that's out there. PGM is somewhat unique, not just in their institutional um, focus, but they are a, a very interesting mix of fixed income, real estate, and real estate financing uh, that makes for a really, really fascinating combination of asset classes. Uh, they, uh, David is uh, as knowledgeable as anybody uh, on these various subjects. If you're at all interested in private credit, real estate investing, fixed income investing, as well as traditional uh, public markets, uh, you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with PGM's David Hunt. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is David Hunt. He is president and CEO of PGM. This is the investment arm of Prudential, the uh, insurance and asset management giant. Uh, you might not be familiar with PGM, but they manage one2 trillion dollars in assets. They may be one of the largest top 10 uh, asset managers you might not have heard of. Uh, David comes to us with a bachelor's degree in engineering, and he spent about 22 years at McKinsey. That's a really unusual background to go into the asset management business. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way uh, to PGM. Well, to be honest, it's not that unusual. Actually, the asset management world has quite a few people who have, uh, you know, management consulting uh, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it, I think, is that um, we are fundamentally wired to be client oriented. And I think one of the aspects of a great asset manager is the fiduciary part of that uh, culture. Mm -hmm. And I think you get that in spades when you're working uh, in, in uh, a firm like McKinsey. And I really have appreciated that set of values from the very beginning. So you mentioned being client-oriented. Who are the clients of PGM? So PGM, uh, as you were nice enough to point out, is uh, the 10th largest asset manager in the world. Um, we serve m most of the world's largest pension plans and other large sovereign wealth funds, central banks. So we are predominantly an institutional uh, mm -hmm. manager. Uh, we do uh, have a retail business uh, here in the United States, uh, which has been growing quite, uh, quite rapidly, but we're better known in the institutional market. 
Um, we uh, serve, uh, I would say, the world's most sophisticated client base with a broad range of products. So we offer, obviously, public equities and public fixed income, but maybe less known is that we're the third largest uh, real estate uh, manager in the world, and we do a lot of other alternatives, including things like private credit, which have obviously been very uh, hot in, uh, in recent years. So we have both a public and a private business. And when I when I was working my way through the various websites of PGM, not only are you one of the largest real estate managers, but you're also a fairly substantial real estate financer. Did did I read that correctly? No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, for many many years, and and this really does go back to the history uh, as an insurance company. Uh, obviously, we financed a lot of uh, office buildings. Prudential, at one point, was the largest direct owner uh, of, of real estate really? in the United States. Huh. Um, but we also have been lending into the real estate business for many, many years. So those are old insurance businesses. And what we've done is to take in them and essentially make them available to third-party uh, investors. So at this point, PGM, although it started out with an insurance heritage, only about 20% of my fees come from Prudential. 80% of it actually comes from uh, third-party clients. So when you're dealing with sovereign wealth funds and central banks and pension funds, how is that different than the traditional base of insurance clients? Um, it is quite different. I mean, insurers need their money managed in very specific ways. They have they have um, real specific liabilities at set future dates based on they, actuarial they tables. And, and in general, they want to manage their money so that they effectively match those liabilities with the cash flow of their uh, of their assets. Mm -hmm. And so, done well, there's actually not that much investment risk that is inherent in those uh, in those books. Third parties tend to want a, a more active approach. Uh -huh. They have uh, less uh, specific liabilities that they're matching, and they will often want a more active um, and, and higher active share style of management than an insurance company will. Huh, that's quite fascinating. So you spent 22 years at McKinsey. How did that prepare you for running what is now the 10th largest investment manager in the world? Well, I think maybe in, in two ways. One is that uh, I uh, ran uh, the asset management practice at McKinsey, so the mm -hmm. group of people who actually served asset managers. So I've spent a lot of the last years uh, working with the leading CEOs uh, in the asset management industry. And so I think my pattern recognition of what's worked and what hasn't is, is reasonably good um, over that period of time. And the second one is that I do think that uh, uh, managing and leading in uh, a professional services context uh, is a lot has a lot of parallels with the investment world. Uh, investors are people with strong convictions. They don't need a lot of management. They might need a little inspiration and leadership. Mm -hmm. um, they're people who have deep convictions, which are only good if they're contrarian. There's no point in having the same view as the rest of the market. And so by nature, uh, they are very independent thinkers. And I would say the same thing is, is true of good consultants. And so having a style where you're able to inspire and lead but not manage is a, uh, is a style that works very well in the investment world. What about the engineering background undergrad? You went to Princeton. Did you plan on going into finance or was 
the engineering background something more so specific? So I think the engineering is a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that effectively the econometrics program at Princeton is in the engineering school. Ah. And so I actually uh, I actually w really majored in econometrics, and I my senior thesis was, was on the emerging markets debt crisis of, uh, of the early 80s. You may remember uh, sure. that, uh, you know, Citi and many others got themselves in an enormous amount of trouble, and I built a a model of how that uh, worked out in order to help predict some of the, the, the future trouble spots. But uh, so it was effectively an econometric, which led me obviously very easily into finance. Hmm, quite fascinating. You were at McKinsey prior to joining PGM. What was your first job uh, at PGM like? What was your role when you first joined the company? So I joined in the same role that I that I have mm -hmm. uh, now. I came in as the president and uh, and CEO. Um, and I think that in many ways it was a very uh, a very natural fit with my uh, with my background. I probably spend about half of my time leading but not managing the investment units. Uh -huh. I spend about a, a third of my time externally with uh, with clients at conferences, uh, really trying to keep my ear to the market. And then I spend some time on my kind of corporate duties for uh, Prudential uh, more broadly and with our board. So what's it like? Leading but not managing the various asset uh, units. That sounds kind of uh, interesting. It's it is absolutely a delicate uh, a delicate balance, and I do uh, like to say that the right style of leadership for uh, a role like this is much more as, as as a servant leader. So I come into the office in the morning and. What's in my mind is what do I need to do to help the people who mm -hmm. are running our businesses be successful? I do not come in in the morning and think these guys somehow report to me in a classic corporate style. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an extremely uh, important mindset in the investment world. Investors don't want to work for a large corporate hierarchy. Uh, they want to work in a place where they have autonomy and freedom to express their often contrarian points of view. And you need to create an environment where that's not just acceptable, but actually encouraged. So what happens if uh, one of these contrarians suddenly go off the rails and they're talking about, hey, this, this XYZ is terrible and we need to move to gold and bottled water and we're going to hide in a cave somewhere. How do you deal with the occasional um, overreactions of, of managers? Because all of us have a tendency to allow our emotions to get get the best of us. Without a doubt. And I think one of the things that uh, we do well is we have a very disciplined team-based investing process. Mm -hmm. So one is that we have very few individuals who are making those decisions. We have a clearly defined process which lays out how we believe an investment uh, thesis should work. And we stick with high conviction trades that stay within that philosophy and oftentimes will be wrong for some period of time. Um, and that's OK. But we make a very clear distinction between high conviction within a process versus somebody who would make a move outside of what we've told clients that we're actually investing behind. And in that case, we rein it back very quickly and very abruptly. What was the environment like during the financial crisis? Was everybody on point and thinking, um, hey, this I, I, is something going to pass? Wasn't or? Really, I wasn't in this role during the Oh, crisis, you, so. you missed it. Oh, so, so, you know, so timing is important in all of yes, this. Yes, to um, say the least. So I, what, I moved over in 2011. Okay. Oh, so you've been there for seven years. That's yep. a mm -hmm. decent. Right. Um, so your whole experience at, at PGM has been 
during what pretty much looks like a rip-roaring bull market, or certainly domestically if we're talking emerging markets, perhaps not so much. Uh, how do you think your role might change when the wheel turns? Well, I think it's a great uh, a great question. There's no doubt that uh, in, in the years since I've been in this seat, we've had pretty friendly markets. Um, and for our mix of business, I would say that's been particularly true, because not only do you have you know, uh, the equity markets, which have been, uh, you know, moving up, but you've also had relatively low rates around the world and, and pretty stable. Um, and then you've had a pretty attractive real estate uh, business, coupled with our private businesses, which really have thrived as banks have pulled back from lending. So we lend money into the middle market, we lend money into the real estate business, and banks really pulled out of that or, or, or substantially out of it. And as a result, those businesses grew very rapidly for us as well. So I think the macro environment for us has been extremely strong. Um, we all know that will turn. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody can predict exactly when, but it will. And part of the uh, art of uh, all of these managerial roles are uh, being willing to stay a bit ahead of that and begin to prepare uh, portfolios for, uh, for a downturn. So... You guys have about you guys. PGM has a uh, 1.2 trillion in assets. About if I'm I'm doing this from memory, so pardon me if I'm off a little bit. A little less than two thirds is fixed income. Is that is that about right? 700 plus. Yes, that's that's right. Um, we tend to look at it a little bit more in terms of fees rather than assets because mm -hmm. that tends to give you a better picture. And it, from that, about 40% of our fees are public fixed income. Hmm. About a third of it is uh, public fixed income. Uh, and the rest of it is alternatives, huh. including quite, real estate. Quite, quite interesting. So given that we've just had a 30-plus year bull market in fixed income – and last year was the first year we really saw that sort of coming to an end. What does this make your group think in terms of um, how you're going to manage duration, risk, um, et cetera? It, are there big changes coming or is it, hey, we have a 30-year time horizon we don't care about last quarter? No, I think absolutely. We spend a lot of time uh, thinking about the effect of, of rates on our portfolios. Um, if you go back in time, we were one of the first people after the financial crisis that said that we believed that rates would stay low for a very long time. And actually, that was an out-of-consensus call. Mm -hmm. Most people thought, oh, it'll be like the last time. It'll snap back quickly. And we really didn't think so. And the reasons behind that uh, had less to do with the Fed and more to do with the fundamental problems we have in our economy, which are low productivity uh, and really low growth. And we felt that until either of those got fixed, rates were going to stay really low around the world. And you coupled that with very accommodative central bank policies, and obviously that turned out to be true. I would say as we went into 13 and 14, more and more people piled into our point of view. And I would say lower for longer kind of became the consensus. Right view. Now you see many more people are beginning again to say, finally, growth is beginning to pick up. We actually do believe now that rates are going to uh, rise. We would agree to an extent, but probably to a much less extent than most other people. We still have lower numbers on our, uh, our yield curve than uh, most other people. We just see uh, this lack of productivity, lack of growth, and importantly, the demographics around the world as keeping rates much lower than they've been historically, and for a very long time. So let me ask a wonky question, given your econometric background. How much of the so-called 
weakness in productivity growth is a measurement issue. I know in my firm, or even here in Bloomberg, technology, software, algorithms allow us to do so much more per individual employee than was even imaginable 10 or 20 years ago. So I'm always shocked when I hear, oh, there's no productivity gains. I see massive productivity gains, or is that my narrow, biased, technology-oriented service sector perspective? So I think there are two different ideas in your in your question. Um, one of them is whether or not there's a measurement problem with productivity. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is absolutely yes. But the more relevant question is, is there any worse a productivity problem measuring <laughs> that, than there was in the past? And that we would actually say there's no real evidence of that. It's always been badly measured. Uh-huh. Um, and we don't see that it's necessarily any worse than it has been. So we don't think you can attribute the productivity problem to measurement at this point. Hmm, the second, the second point you made though is, you know, is your is your lens on the world just unique and different? And I would to that I would say yes. One of the interesting things about productivity when you break it down industry by industry is it's just massively different. So communications hmm. and media and some of have seen enormous growth in productivity, telecommunications. But uh, very, lar- very large portions of the economy in terms of healthcare, in terms of retail, have not seen that. And so uh, the productivity story is not a kind of flat average. It's very much a tale of two cities. But much of the economy is not seeing the productivity lifts that you described. Hmm, quite fascinating. Let, let's talk about um, where we are today in the markets. We, we see the yield curve flattening. Everybody seems to be jumping up and down and saying this foretends a uh, recession in the in the near future. What what is P. Jim's view on this? So we uh, believe that the yield curve will continue to flatten. Um, we do believe that the Fed uh, quite properly will continue to raise uh, rates at the at the short end. I mean, the economy is doing very well, um, and we think that's entirely an appropriate policy response. On the other hand, as we spoke about a moment ago, uh, we do believe that there's an enormous amount of money that's coming from the the aging population. So in the retirement mm-hmm. systems and pension funds, which will continue to weigh down on the long end uh, of the curve. So we think that flat Meaning that they're big long-term investors big and they're going to stay and uh, with long-duration fixed they, income. They are, because remember, they're matching liabilities for that as mm-hmm. opposed to looking for the absolute return. Mm-hmm. So we think that will continue to way on that, which will just flatten that curve uh, even further. Now, at some point, does it become inverted? Quite possibly. But remember, an inverted yield curve doesn't cause anything. It's more a symbol of what may happen. Because what the market is telling you when that happens is that people think long-term growth is actually below what short-term rates are. And that's actually the symbol, the, the signal that's being sent out by an inverted uh, yield curve. But we've also had inverted yield curves, which have not led uh, ultimately to recessions. And there's certainly a lag that goes uh, with that. So you're still looking at kind of 18 to 24 months before that signal even really kicks in. Thank you so much for saying that it's a symbol and not a cause. I can't tell you how many people seem to get that wrong, and it's absolutely um, infuriating. We're, We're also starting from such low rates and as the Fed normalizes, shouldn't the yield curve flatten anyway 
during that process? It, it should. And, and remember, kind of low all depends on your perspective. So if you're in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, rates <laughs> over here look positively luxurious. Um, and it's even true in large parts of, uh, of continental Europe. So while we uh, view, have a view on our, our rates, uh, many others around the world see us as an attractive rate play. Huh. And certainly as a business, we, uh, we see uh, quite significant flows from outside the United States coming back into uh, credit products for that very reason. This is a yield pickup for them. But that, of course, in turn keeps our rates lower. Sure. It makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Um, so you have a substantial exposure in the uh, private equity worlds and in that side of the market. How do you um, look at that? Some people have been calling it frothy. What's what's the PGM view on private markets and private equity these days? So I would say that our view on alternatives broadly defined, which mm-hmm. I would include private equity, I would include real estate in particular uh, in that, and our private credit businesses, uh, is is very positive. We mm-hmm. actually think that uh, uh, private forms uh, of investment will continue to grow pretty rapidly. We're seeing uh, a lot of demand from our big institutional clients for that. Many of them have actually been taking money out of public equities and moving it into uh, into alternatives. One of the important things to remember about uh, private markets is that in many ways they can weather a downturn uh, a bit better, right? Because Not they daily prices. There's no daily prices. And so uh, if you think we're 24 months uh, away or whatever your particular time frame is, uh, you may decide that a better way to play this market is through uh, the, private, the private businesses. So we, we have a very uh, attractive view uh, of that. Um, and much of the dry powder that's been raised in private equity, and we are not in the large buyout uh, business right. ourselves, but much of the dry powder in there we think will actually probably sit on the sidelines until pricing gets a little bit more uh, reasonable. I was going to ask about valuations a lot of people seem to think stocks and bonds are are pricey we can we can debate that it, it's certainly not historically cheap on on the equity side but that said when we look at venture capital when we look at some of the private equity firms it seems to be a little frothy it seems like a lot of money has flowed into those spaces do you see the same valuation issue in private equity or is it a hey, we don't get daily prices, so we can ride out a downturn a little more comfortably in that space. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think having an institutional perspective is maybe very different than uh, what you hear in the the retail world. Mm -hmm. So our view is the biggest risk the markets present today is high prices, Mm -hmm. not volatility. Actually, most of our clients would be quite happy if we had a bit of a correction in the market because their biggest problem is today's vintage of money that they're putting out. What kind of return over 10 years will they be able to earn on that, given the high prices that are on almost any asset class that you've got? So actually, a bit more volatility would be better and probably lower risk for most institutions uh, from where we stand today. And I think that's with the focus on what is the level of the market, it completely misses the point that that volatility is not risk. Mm -hmm. And actually, a bit more volatility would give people an opportunity to get into markets that they've been priced out of. High uh, valuations mean forward-looking expected returns are are lower. lower. And lower valuations are the opposite. It means exact, you have better uh, exactly returns. right. Quite quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the industry because you've gotten to see how it's evolved from multiple perspectives um, over the past almost three decades. 
what do you see as the uh, evolution of the industry? What's the most significant thing from your sort of institutional perch? So I think the most important trend that we see right now in the industry is very much the fact that the two worlds of alternatives and long-only asset managers are coming together. So the, the entire universe was broken into these two. I mean, there were the Blackstones and Carlyles and KKRs mm -hmm. on the one hand, and they did they started in private equity but expanded out broadly from that. And then there was the broad variety of people who largely did long-only public securities. And these were covered by different analysts. They were talked about by different par persons. Even the press had very different people who covered those two groups. Um, that really is now um, we're, we're seeing a fundamental merging of those. So more and more, you'll see firms like PGM, uh, where we are very much a blend of those. We have a big alternative business. We have a big long-only business as well. And you're seeing many more of the uh, historically alternatives guys getting into long-only. All of a sudden, they think core real estate is just great. Uh, and you see a lot of other long-only managers deciding that they'd like to really launch uh, private credit and infrastructure funds. Hmm. So you're really seeing this merger. And that is driving a need for scale. So the other, uh, I would say, secondary trend you're seeing is that the large global firms are winning and they are taking share away from uh, individual country-specific firms um, who've largely grown up in an individual asset class. So on the retail side, the biggest change over the past decade has to be the rise of low-cost passive indexing. How are you seeing the reverberations of that on the institutional side. What what you guys do very much is not passive. By design, you're looking for active share. You're looking for non-correlated assets. It's a completely different... No, it's a very, a very different game. In fact, we've designed our approach to the equity markets to work with passive. Mm -hmm. We believe that passive uh, will continue to grow. We think that it has an important role in many investors' uh, portfolios. But what you need uh, with that is then other high active share strategies, which will allow you to drive alpha over longer periods of time. And most of the money that we manage is done in either that style, mm -hmm. or we have a pretty big quantitative business um, where we actually use computer algorithms which capture very consistent alpha over long periods of time at pricing that's just slightly above uh, what you would find in an index fund. So those two strategies are designed to work with, not against, passive strategies. And we've actually seen that approach be far more effective than what many others have done, which is to effectively try to fight passive, uh, particularly in the retail side, which has not been a winning strategy. So my assumption is that your clients are have a big slug of passive exposure, and they come to you for the active side. That's correct. And and you mentioned the quantitative group. Uh, pardon me if I get the dates wrong. You had one of the first quantitative groups on Wall Street. Does that date back to like 1975? You you right? have a very good memory. It okay. absolutely does. That uh, that's uh that's not from the notes. <laughs> I just remember being a little startled and saying 1975 quantum. No, group, we were we amazing. were we were absolutely one of the very first people in to pioneer the use of computer algorithms uh, for that. Uh, the business goes under the brand QMA, a PGM mm -hmm. business, and uh, you know it's been remarkably successful in both the U.S. and in global markets. They also do a lot of our multi-asset class. 
finance uh, investing, which again has had very attractive returns through uh, through a cycle. And clearly, that's a business that's highly scalable uh, once you've uh, you know got your uh, got your algorithms thoroughly thoroughly tested. So we're talking about uh, active versus passive and quantitative versus traditional. Uh, one of the things that keeps coming up in those discussions is the declining number of companies that are publicly available to trade, especially here in the United States. Any thoughts on that? What? How do you? How do? How does PGM view that in terms of your public market exposure? So we uh, we are quite troubled by the health of the public equity markets in the U.S. Mm -hmm. While they hit all time highs, we think that that actually uh, masks what's going on underneath, and that is that our public markets in this country have ceased to be the home of choice for fast growing, uh, mid sized or smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to 1996, there were almost 8,000 publicly traded companies. There are now 3,700, so almost more than half uh, mm -hmm. fallen in terms of number. As worrying, or maybe even more worrying, is the, is the IPO trend. So again, if you go back to the 90s, we were looking at five, 600 companies a year that were coming in. I mean, if you were a tech uh, entrepreneur then, your, your holy grail was to become public. Right. Now your holy grail is to take another dollop of private capital and stay private uh, for as long as you can. And so what we're seeing is that basically private equity is becoming the owner of choice for these companies. And at one level, you can say, well, maybe that doesn't matter. At least we're funding it and the capitalist system is, is working. But what's hidden in that is that it used to be the returns from these fast-growing companies were available to retail investors. Mm -hmm. And they now aren't. Um, they're actually captured by institutions through private equity. And you know, I think that's a bit of a shame. I think that uh, the democratization of our capital market has always been an important part of the American story. And that's becoming less true. But the, the public markets are going to have to raise their game because private equity has been very successful. They're getting better and better at what they do. They have proven to be good owners of businesses. And the public markets are going to have to raise their game if they're going to uh, really turn this around. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but here's the pushback I hear on this subject. When you control for the number of teeny tiny pink sheet companies that were a dry cleaner trading at $3 million valuation. When you remove all that, the big decrease from 8,000 to 4,000, most of that goes away, says some uh, uh, an analysts. And then you take the Jobs Act uh, under the Bush administration, which really opened up the ability for more people to make investments in then private companies, plus the ton of venture capital cash floating around. I mean, there is a, uh, a tsunami of cash out there. Is it a shock that, that we're not seeing as many companies trading publicly as we did 10 and 20 years ago? I don't necessarily say I was, it's a shock, but I do think that uh, our public markets are very much under threat by this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, almost all of the sources of capital that you describe, whether it's private equity or venture, um, those are institutional pools of money for the right. most part. So, yeah, as an institutional money manager, I will be able to capture uh, a, a good <laughs> deal of that. But it won't be available the way it was in the 1990s to uh, people through their 401k plans. And I think that is a bit of a shame. And it's certainly a big change in our capital markets. I don't know if we ever made the decision that we wanted to have 
private equity be you know a dominant funder uh, of uh, of mid-sized companies. But I, I think hats off to them; they've done a really good job at it. So, what's the prescription for the various Nasdaq, NYSE? Um, various bourses around the world to repair that that so issue. The, so the popular whipping boy for this has been regulation. That regulation has gotten so onerous on public markets uh, that many people don't want to kind of bear the scrutiny of that. And indeed, uh, last year in 2017, we had more companies go from public to private than we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think that that is true a bit, but it's actually far from the full uh, the full story. The reality is over the last 10 years, effectively, the banks and the sell side have withdrawn their support of small of small uh, uh-huh. stocks. There's no analysts covering these anymore. They're not putting out capital in order to trade uh, these. They're not supporting them. And so we would actually need to go back and rewire uh, a good deal of the ecosystem that supports public trading in small companies in order to fix this problem. And of course, it's exacerbated by the huge flow into index funds that you described earlier, because there's a big difference between being in the you know, S&P 500 and not being. Most mm-hmm. of these companies would come in, they wouldn't be in that. And so they're not drawing the kind of capital that they would have uh, pre, uh, pre-indexing. Post-financial crisis, we've seen a huge consolidation amongst the big banks, amongst the big investment banks as well. How much does that top-heavy, much fewer banks uh, managing the top half of assets affect what you're describing as the the lack of enthusiasm for small and mid-cap companies and for for IPOs? Oh, I think think it's had a very significant uh, impact. Uh, We have not only the consolidation that you refer to, but we've also had a massive retrenchment, right? Mm -hmm. So the continental European banks have gone back to continental Europe. The Brits have gone back to their island for the most part. (laughs) And whereas you used to have a whole series of large global banks who staked their ambitions on doing that, Mm -hmm. you now really don't. And so we see that even in our own trade businesses where we have less options for counterparties um, than we did uh, 10 years ago. Um, we also get a lot less uh, uh, of our, our analyst work done by the sell side. And as a result, we have many more of our own researchers and analysts than we would have had a decade ago for sure. Hmm, quite fascinating. Can you stick around a bit? I have a ton more questions sure, for you. Sure, sure. We have been speaking with David Hunt, CEO of PGM Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things asset management. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily columns at bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I've been looking forward to this. I'm fascinated by PGM, and, and you hinted it at something I have to bring up. How do you get to be the 10th largest asset manager with a 100-year track record? And not only does the average retail investor not know who you are, half the people from the industry I spoke to I said, oh, I'm interviewing uh, the CEO of, of PGM, and they're like, who? 
it's a trillion dollar firm and and I'm I'm guilty of it. Also, how have you guys managed to stay so under the radar and grow as rapidly as you have? So the grow as rapidly as you have uh, part is the easy uh, question to answer <laughs> and that is because we uh, we believe uh, that we have some of the best investment performance in the industry. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's how we measure our success as to whether or not our clients are doing well. Mm -hmm. We actually don't uh, care about how much AUM we have. We don't, uh, we don't have a goal around that. We don't have financial goals, but we have a lot of goals around creating excess returns for clients. And mm -hmm. if you do that well, the rest of the things take care of themselves. You'll have more clients, you'll have more money from existing clients, sure. and your growth will happen. So let's come on to your other question which is about what about the what about the brand mm -hmm. so uh pgm is only two and a half years old as a brand mm -hmm. um uh, prior to that all of our different affiliates had their own uh brand names and you they and, also have their own independent websites right under the the uh, parent company's right. jurisprudence and while while this business was largely a u.s business in some ways i don't know if that mattered very much mm -hmm. but as you may know uh, we can't use the prudential name uh, outside really of the u.s and japan and there's mm -hmm. a few other exceptions is that um, is that due to contract or is it because just... of the prudential plc which is based uh, in the uk and which is not in any way affiliated with us mm -hmm. but they own the the rights to the name prudential so as ah, i came okay. into this role um it was clear if I wanted to expand the business to be truly a global leader in the investment world, mm -hmm. we needed a single name that we could use around the world. And so we uh, looked around. We obviously did a lot of uh, test marketing, as you can imagine, and we came up with with PGIM, well, which is a name that we can use everywhere. Mm -hmm. But that is only two and a half years old. And like with any brand, sure. it takes time for that to really sink in and be uh, associated. And it's a new brand. We didn't have a, really a name that we used externally for the, the entire investment business. So it's not surprising to me at all that you've, uh, you've found that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's in the process of changing. And my hope is that when we sit down three years from now, uh, and you've talked to your colleagues, that they will say, oh, yes, I have heard of them a bit. And there are a handful of acronym-based asset managers from oh, ev S&P, MSCI, um, DFA. There are a bunch of them around. Um, GSAM, MSIM, GAM. I mean, pick your favorite. Yeah. Although GSAM and, and those, you know, you they're really under Goldman Sachs, so you really think, I don't think of them as an acronym business the way I do uh, an MSCI or a mm -hmm. DFA. Um, so that's You're interesting. probably old enough to know what PIMCO stands for. Uh, yeah, Pacific <laughs> Insurance Management Co. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, not only that, I'm old enough to remember, uh, and it helps to having had Bill Gross <laughs> here, the story of how PIMCO yes. was launched out of the Pacific right. Life Insurance Company. Absolutely it began right. as, hey, why don't you let us manage your fixed income and maybe we'll find some other Those clients. people too, right? Yeah, so right. it's 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 one of those things. And um, <laughs> I guess you forget, I forget PIMCO is an acronym because I'm just so used to it right. as PIMCO. And, that's, and then that happens over, over time. Well, 35 years later, yeah. sure. So- well, let's revisit this okay. in, you, you in, and I will in do this 2052, <laughs> and we'll see how, how broadly PGM, PGM has been has been accepted. So there's a bunch of other questions I wanted to, to get to um, that we kind of skipped. We talked about market valuation. We talked about um, your, your role at, at PGM. Um, let's talk a little bit about consultants, because 
Uh, I think consultants these days have gotten a bad rap, some of which is not deserved, but some of which is. How do you? How does your office work with the various consultants to different large um, buy side customers like? Pension funds, insurers, and and sovereign wealth funds. Well, the the pension consultants are obviously extremely important uh, partners of ours in in the whole ecosystem of uh, of money management. Um, you know, they are the people who the trustees look to for advice and guidance. They're also the people that do a lot of the asset and liability studies mm-hmm. um, that uh, underpin the uh, the strategic asset allocation. So here's um, my question about that, and and this is really off the top of my head. Why does a investment committee at a big pension fund need an outside consultant? Isn't what the consultant does really their job? I think that's a fairly common um, perspective from people. Why, why is that view wrong? Or is it wrong? Well, I think that there are two aspects of, uh, of the question. I mean, one of them is, is just are they doing the same job? And the answer to that is in general, no. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what goes into a detailed liability study of one of these, uh, most pension funds are not staffed to do that. And by the way, they only do that every few years. Right. And I think it would be silly for them to do it. So I think that's actually an effective way to in do it. In other words, they have an expert from the outside as opposed to needing to develop that in-house right. for the occasional right. you know, quadrennial need. And the, the other then is to, is having a, uh, a second opinion on asset asset allocation discussions. Most CIOs do have their own internal views and group that does that. They have a, a pension group. They may even have a second pension group mm-hmm. um, that they uh, get views on that because they do want to get the very best thinking on those questions. And I think that's completely, uh, completely appropriate. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Um, we discussed your clients. We talked about... Um, Pensions a little bit. Lots of pensions in the United States, especially public pensions, seem to be somewhat underfunded, although there are plenty of corporate pensions that are underfunded also. Uh, how is that going to play out? What what should these underfunded public pensions be doing today so that the rest of the taxpayers aren't on the hook uh, for, for a big bill 20, 30 years down the road? The pension Guaranteed trust is eventually going to run out of money. How, how do we deal with this? Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, for most of my career, you could walk into a, a corporate pension and a uh, public pension and guess that the asset allocation was 60-40. And you <laughs> right. largely be right within right. a few percentages. Now you go into a corporate plan, and for the most part, uh, they have fundamentally de-risked their portfolios. Mm-hmm. They have uh, moved out of risk assets. They are much heavier into fixed income. They've started to match through uh, liability-driven uh, investing, match their their investment. And in some extreme cases, they've even done um, a, a pension risk transfer, which is to literally take that pension off their balance sheet and give it to uh, an insurance company to manage. But they've really worked very hard to de-risk because what they care about is not absolute return. They care about whether or not their funding level relative to their liabilities is um, going to be appropriate so they can meet their meet their obligations. So they've been de-risking. At the same time, the public plans have really been going in the other direction. 
um, because the assets and the liabilities there are not actually managed in the same place. The politicians generally control how large the liabilities get by what's promised to unions and others. Um, the, the, the CIOs tend to then need to manage those assets to match that. And the only even if way, it's unrealistic, even if it's unrealistic, and so the only way they've been able to do that has been to continue to move out on the on the risk curve. Right. So three to one leverage all equity with a, a little lot, private a lot equity, of, a lot of private equity, a lot, lot of, of hedge funds yeah. uh, to try to do that. Now, if you do the math, you really can't convince yourself that uh, investment returns will actually make up for the shortfalls in a lot of this. Right. There's really no way. And when you look at the recent decade of alternatives that most of these pension funds are, are in, I know they, for some reason, I don't, can't explain it, they all have higher expected returns, but the actual performance, for the most part across the whole industry, has been pretty poor. That's true. Uh, and I would say that that's been, uh, as we've, and we did a big study on different forms of uh, alternatives, and the group mm -hmm. that did come in for the toughest test was uh, was hedge funds. Mm -hmm. um, because not only did you have the return problem, but actually most of them turned out to be quite correlated with the equity right. markets. And so, you know, one of the reasons they were called alternatives was, was supposed to give you a different risk profile, right, than, than you had with your public markets. And they really haven't delivered on that. Private equity, interestingly, did, as did real estate. Private equity um, least correlated and, and best higher returns, returns than, than yeah. the rest of the alternatives. And and, and some of that has to do, I would imagine, with the ability to not only have these longer holding periods where you're not absolutely right. to market, but the ability to take advantages of the volatility and the dislocations. When value presents itself, private equity has the best seat to jump into that. Or, or am I overstating it? No, I think I think that, that that ability to take the kind of seven to 10 year view and not be forced to either mark the market or necessarily uh, to invest this year even mm -hmm. uh, is a very uh, attractive uh, piece of the business model. I wouldn't uh, underplay, though, the role that getting kind of common incentives have played. I think that if you go back in the history of, of private equity in the, the early days, mm -hmm. a lot of this was financial engineering and it was it was done with leverage. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the not, LBO side. Yeah, that's not it's so in the much name. true today. Yeah. You really do find that uh, you know private equity have been good owners. They've been investing behind their uh, businesses. They get the incentives right with management, um, and I think they've proven that uh, when you have a longer time frame, that's actually a very effective way uh, to run to run a firm. So I pulled this off of the website that uh, under your bio. Uh, I, I have to have you um, explain this a bit. Mr. Hunt oversees all aspects of the asset management business, including its public fixed income, real estate, public equity, private fixed income, and mutual fund units. That sounds like an enormous job. What is your day-to-day -day like? What, what is a day in the life of David Hunt like at PGM? So I'm not sure there's any typical day, uh, which is one of the wonderful things about a role like this, is that it's endlessly, uh, endlessly varied. Um, but I can say that over the period of a year, um, I would say about half of my time is spent um, leading but not managing the businesses that you described. 
Uh, about a third of my time is spent out with clients um, and, and kind of outwardly focused. So I'm trying to keep my ear to the market of what clients are really needing and wanting. And then the remaining time is spent more on kind of corporate governance issues and, and working with uh, prudential executives and our, and our board. So it's a, it's a pretty nice mix of, uh, of activities. So you mentioned you have your ear to the ground and listening to what clients um, are talking about. What are clients saying today? What what are they concerned about? And what do you think is kind of interesting that's bubbling up from that client base? So I would say the most interesting thing is that uh, to watch the battle between the head and the heart of many of our clients right mm -hmm. now. So they look at all the numbers and they see the economy is doing really well. Um, you know, we've got 4% uh, growth in the second quarter. Earnings were up 25%. Inflation looks really good. Um, you know, they should be feeling pretty, um, you know, comfortable with uh, with risk assets. And then uh, that conversation ends pretty quickly and, and the heart <laughs> comes in. And they are very defensive. All of the questions they ask me are about positioning their portfolio to get through the next downturn. Mm -hmm. They're worried about trade and political risk. They're not worried about the traditional business cycle very sure. much. So you have this very strange paradox where the numbers all actually look really good, and yet people's questions and behavior is actually much more of a group of people who is worried that um, we're going to have a, a pullback. Huh. That that's that's quite quite fascinating. It's um that battle between head and heart is uh, is an ongoing is an ongoing issue amongst all investors. So how do you how do you respond to people when they say, you know, we want to be defensive and and how much of that is still the scar tissue left over from the 0809 crash. I, I, I think it's a great point. There's there's a fascinating uh, anthropological study to look at those CIOs who were in their seats when we went through the crisis versus right. the guys who got their job more recently. And they have very different uh, behaviors. Sure. And there's no question there's a lot of scar tissue that, uh, that still remains from the people that, that have their jobs. I don't know if you remember the book uh, The Money Game by Adam Smith. Sure. He within the book, there's a chapter that describes a person running a fund and he says, I have to hire all these young Turks to trade because I would never touch any of this stuff. <laughs> I've been through the previous cycles and all this stuff looks like junk to me, but I would underperform if I didn't have the hot shots. And when they blow up, I'll still be around afterwards. They'll lose their jobs, but I'll capture the return now that I wouldn't have otherwise. It's kind of an interesting thing. You were at McKinsey in the middle of uh, the financial crisis. What was the experience like there when it looked like the world was uh, teetering on the abyss? Well, I think like almost anybody who was working uh, in, the, in the financial industry, it was, uh, it was absolutely uh, frightening, uh, particularly because of the ramifications all around the world on almost any industry of what was happening in the, in the financial world. Um, you know, to some extent for uh, consulting firms, uh, there was an enormous amount of problems to be solved coming out of it. And if you're in the business of solving problems, that tends to be a, a, a good thing. <laughs> the type of problems, let me tell you, growth strategies uh, pretty much came to a grinding halt. But, uh, but workouts and liquidity and risk management uh, really came to, the, came to the fore. So the mix of work changed, um, but it was absolutely fascinating and terrifying at the same time. So the one question I didn't get to that I would be remiss if I did not bring up is the role of all the new financial technologies, both for managing assets 
and for running an asset management business. How is PGM looking at all the new fintech that's out there, and what does this mean for the industry going forward? Well, I would say we're at peak hype on the technology. Peak uh, hype. I uh, love that. <laughs> uh, front at the moment. I'm convinced that if I just slap uh, the word AI on the name of any mutual fund, I could raise another billion dollars. Right. That's really not a good place to be. Um, so I, I think that uh, it's important to focus on technology, but I also think you can't be carried away with a lot of the things that you're reading in the, in the press at the moment. Um we uh, have spent a lot of time on artificial intelligence and how to apply it to the investment process. And we do think uh, there are some real uh, possible breakthroughs in that, particularly come coming from the use of uh, satellite imagery and also the use of location devices. For example, in our real estate business, we're able to underwrite an office building using that kind of uh, information in a far more sophisticated way than we would have before. What satellite information? Or sure. I mean, imagine uh, you 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 you're about to buy an an office complex, mm -hmm. and you'd like to know for the last you know five years what has the traffic been like it, how uh -huh. many cars have been parked in there, what is the foot traffic around it, and you can actually get real data on that. You don't just have to look at what's happened to uh, to sales. Huh. So there's there, the alternative data is important, but it's going to be an evolution. Um, and many people will find false signals for a long time. And we, we know running money quantitatively, you look at 100 signals before you find one that has real staying power. Mm -hmm. And so it'll take time before we, we figure this out. But I think that is an important piece of it. The other uh, side of it is the, the use of uh, robotics. And we do see a lot of the kinds of repetitive tasks that happen in uh, an asset manager as being able to be uh, done uh, through bots. Um, we are certainly using those and have plans to do more of that, which simply allow us to um, uh, use our uh, associates in ways that make better use of their talents than doing repetitive tasks. What does this mean for headcount in the world of finance going forward? It, it, so far, we've, post-financial crisis, seen not just fee compression, but an ongoing reduction in total employee headcount. Um, is that going to continue for the foreseeable future? So I would say, in, in, I, let's leave for the financial services broadly out of it. If we just talk about the in investment world, mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, broadly, uh, fee compression has been uh, uh, concentrated in a couple of different areas, mostly in public uh, equities. Mm -hmm. But there's been relatively little fee compression in the alternatives world, in private equity, uh, in private credit. So if you look at PGIM, for example, um, we really haven't seen any, uh, any real price uh, compression um, if you look across the total the total platform that that's fascinating the two areas where I'm where it's noticeable active mutual funds clearly under pressure from low-cost um, indexes and then the hedge fund world that was known as 2 and 20 has become 1 and 15 or less and there are some really interesting alternative fee structures where it's um, 50 basis points and then a percentage of alpha as opposed to 20% of profits, much of which is beta. So that's really been under pressure. You're not seeing that in the private equity side or the real estate side. No, you really, um, you really aren't. I mean, if you're able to generate uh, alpha and you have a scarce source of that, uh, I would say that people are willing to pay for it. Um, and 
you know, it's uh, it's very interesting if you were to ask yourself the question from the client's point of view. So do you think that large pension plans pay more or less for asset management now than they did 10 years ago? I would and assume less, no, but I you're going to surprise wrong. me. Uh, huh. Because the mix has changed. Because the, we were talking about before how the asset allocation has worked. Sure. As they've moved much more into risk assets and alternatives, they're actually paying more. Now, a lot of that's in performance fees, so they're getting the return for it. But they're actually, their total bill... Um, in many cases, has gone up. What they're paying for beta has definitely gone down, and I'd say that's good. Right. I think people are very comfortable paying up for performance if they get if they performance. Get the performance right. What they were doing before was paying up for the possibility of performance and then not getting it. That business seems to really be under pressure. I, I, I think it is. I think if you were a closet index guy and charging actually fees for it, you're having a really tough time. And my view would be, and so you should be. That that Bill Miller, uh, the famous fund manager, said the exact same thing. It's not necessarily passive over active. It's closet passive with active fees. Mm-hmm. He goes, there's no reason people should be doing that. I would agree with that. And, and I think for a long time, people... Uh, People didn't recognize that, but a little bit of turmoil, and suddenly everybody comes a little uh, cost conscious. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time, so let me jump in to my favorite questions. Uh, these are what we ask all of our guests. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about you. What 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 is it that uh, is the deep dark secret of David Hunt? I don't think there's any deep, dark secrets, or I ho- hope not, but I think that uh, the one of the most important things about my development has been the fact that I've had the opportunity to work around the world um, mm-hmm. for much of my life. What, what so parts worked, of the world? I, I worked, uh, when I first graduated from school, I worked in Asia for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I remember you know, traveling throughout China when there were literally very few roads and only those big, you know, Russian black cars to ferry the government right. officials around. Um, I worked uh, in uh, in Paris. I've wor- I worked for six years uh, in London. Um, and so I really feel that I have been able to develop a much broader perspective on on business and on people and on management mm-hmm. because I've actually not just traveled but worked and lived in different cultures around the world. And I think that's such, so important for people to have that experience. Gives you a global perspective yeah. as opposed to a home country bias. Uh, who were some of your early mentors? Who helped guide your career when you were getting started out? So I really uh, feel very fortunate in that uh, having grown up uh, at McKinsey, which uh, is a partnership, that there were many other senior partners around uh, who wanted to help and mentor people and explicitly made it a part of their day-to-day life to do that. And I would uh, point out particularly uh, a guy named Ron Daniel, who was the managing director for many years, who was the person who urged me um, to really step out uh, of the consulting world and go on a series of not-for-profit boards um, as a way of building a whole different perspective and different set of skills. And so he's the person who got me uh, really onto uh, both the uh, International Rescue Committee and then ultimately onto the Lincoln Center Board, where I've been for about 15 years. And uh, these are incredibly important and formative um uh, experiences for people to have. Today, I urge many of my colleagues to try to go on boards because it does open an entirely different world to you. And the mentorship that I had early on really encouraged and supported that, and I'm, I'm forever grateful. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Um, 
What about investors? Who influenced the way you look at the world of finance and investing as, as you were coming up through um, Princeton and, and Wharton and beyond? I think it's uh, I think it's hard to pick on any particular uh, person in in all of this because I think that uh, you know one does uh, pick a style that depends on who your clients are. Mm-hmm. So uh, for uh, for for large institutional investors, the whole theory of asset pricing and what Markowitz and the work that they did or Fama were the people that I studied the 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 most. But I also think that uh, the world changes, and uh, as we see now uh, what is an efficient frontier and how pricing works is very different in a world now with uh, with beta the way we have it than it was when they did their work so I think that uh, I think that while it's good to have early informative uh, you know kind of uh, stars that you study you need to be willing to continue to update those views as well have to be intellectually flexible um, let's talk about some of your favorite books. This is everybody's favorite question. What have you been reading? Fiction, nonfiction? What do you like to recommend to people? So my my pick for the summer has been uh, Why We Sleep. Um, Why We Sleep. Yep. Which is uh, written uh, by the head of the uh, Berkeley Sleep Lab. And uh, it is uh, an absolutely fascinating expose on uh, what does sleep really do for you? Why, why do you sleep? And it starts even with the broadest range of why do all animals sleep? Do you know that giraffes need four hours? I did not know uh, did, you, that. did you know that dolphins sleep with one half of their brain and then they wake up and the other half goes to sleep because they need to keep moving in the water? Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks about the importance of, uh, of REM and non-REM sleep and what the two do and the, their involvement in that in learning. And then it does talk a bit about how, uh, you know, as a society, we don't nearly get enough sleep and don't, uh, and don't value it uh, nearly as much as that we should and how the technological wave that we were talking about earlier um, has actually intruded on people's sleep in very important and fundamental ways. And he makes the case that America is an incredibly sleep-starved society. And, and not only are we a sleep-starved society, we've exported that around the world, <laughs> and other countries have unfortunately been following our, our lead. That, <laughs> that right. sounds fascinating. I'm going to put that on my list. Any, any I, other books you— uh... I think that's a that's a good one for this. All right, for sure. Um Tell us about uh, what excites you right now about the industry. What do you think is the most interesting development that's taking place today? Oh, I think it's a it's a fabulous time to be in the investment world. Um, we are really seeing uh, the 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 change of business models in almost every single uh, aspect of the industry. Whether or not it is in what is a technology company? What's happening to online retail? Uh, what's happening with internet companies in the developing countries? So, you know, we see some of the most interesting opportunities in China and India actually being in technology companies there because they don't have all these legacy systems. They are going right to the smartphones. Mm-hmm. And we see fascinating opportunities to disrupt uh, industries in that. So I think there's never been a more interesting time, given the pace of change, to be an active manager, because there's so many places where you can add uh, significant excess returns. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Um, what changes are you looking forward to? What do you think is in flux? What does the next decade look like, and how is it going to be different than 
what we just came out of. Well, I, th- I, I think the biggest change is going to be this uh, confluence of uh, private and public into mm-hmm. a very different form of asset manager who is able to do both of those and to deliver integrated solutions to their, their clients. And we will no longer have a world where, you know, Bloomberg has a reporter for private equity and a reporter for uh, long only. I mean, all of a sudden, these will become fundamentally integrated with each other. Hmm. Quite Quite interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I mean, so so many times it's uh, <laughs> it's really hard to uh, it's hard to know what to pick. Um, so if I you, you asked earlier about the the, the financial crisis, um, if I go back even beyond that to uh, the early knots when we had the big meltdown uh, around technology stocks. So I was uh, the leader of the capital markets practice at that point, mm-hmm. and literally our revenue uh, went from uh, very large and global to zero in about uh, four months. Wow. And I had partners all around the world uh, who, uh, you know, were very worried about what this was going to mean for their careers and families. We had clients who were obviously in deep disarray about what they were going to do. And, uh, you know, it was a monumental task to try to get that group uh, up and running and confident and staying with clients and being willing to take the five-year view on their success rather than whether or not there would be anything to do over six months. And I would say uh, in the beginnings of that, I failed utterly at finding the right way uh, to motivate and to enhance that. And it took me a lot of trial and error before I got to the point where I realized that what was needed here, again, was not management, but inspiration of the role that they could play with their clients. Those are two very different things, isn't Very it? different things. And I really learned to shift. Uh, between the two. People didn't need, you know, day-to-day instruction on what they ought to be doing. And mostly they felt badly because they weren't generating any revenue. And that wasn't the point. But they needed to feel that they were making a difference with their clients. And once I got that right, then good things began to happen. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. Um, what do you do for fun when you're not in the office? What do you do to relax or for entertainment? So uh, I'm uh, a, a, a poor but enthusiastic tennis player and have been As for, <laughs> for a long time. Um, and uh, I have found that uh, tennis has been a really important part of my life. We talked earlier about living all over the world. Well, you know, you go to Hong Kong, you don't know anybody. You take your little rackets and you go down to the local tennis club. And in two weeks, you have a whole set of friends. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're friends that you wouldn't necessarily meet through right. uh, your regular work day. So you're, you're all of a sudden involved in a different uh, society. Uh, it's, it's really a wonderful sport. It's a life sport and it's one that you can do anywhere. So I, uh, when I travel, I take my tennis racket and I always try to get, uh, my time on the courts. Have you been watching the U S open? We're recording of, this right in the uh, middle. Uh, of, of course I have. Uh, I went on Monday. In fact, oh, really? uh, I, I saw, I saw Madison's big match, uh, on Monday. So I do, I, I watch as much of it, uh, as I, as I can. I think it's one of the great, uh, terms of the world. I even went to the French open this year as well. So. No kidding. I, I was a little shocked by Federer. That was a, that was a surprise. It was a big surprise. And, uh, you know, it's a reminder to all of us that even uh, even the great ones do begin to slow down a little He's bit. He's what, 37? Something yeah. like that? That's, but that uh, but that heat uh, was brutal. really intense. I brutal. can tell you on Monday when I was there, it was the uh, the hottest I can ever remember. 94 and humid. Yeah. Now, uh, just feels impossible. like 105. And you got to play for four hours. It's yeah, just I, I don't know how they do it, actually. Um, 
Um, and and Serena Williams. This is uh, pretty amazing. Wonderful. She just had a baby. Wonderful. Six months ago. It's crazy. Wonderful story. And yeah. uh, incredible level of athleticism and, and most importantly, ability to compete. You know, and, and you think about that even in a corporate context of how difficult it is to actually play better when you're under pressure. And hmm. that is a unique and wonderful skill. And she does it time and again. She very easily could be the greatest tennis player of all time. By the time her career is done, she will certainly have more opens in the modern era than anybody, maybe more of all time. That, that'll that be interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, we were discussing millennials earlier. Um, what would you say to a recent college grad or a millennial who was looking for some career advice and was interested in the world of finance? So very uh, similar to the story I talked about in, in terms of my own career. I, my biggest piece of advice is while you're young, make sure you have an opportunity to live and work abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important that you gain that uh, broad-based experience. It will change what, who you are as a person. It will change how you feel about being an American. It will change how you uh, learn to a- interact with other cultures and people. And so while you're young and you don't have kids and you have some flexibility, move to Europe for two years. Huh. That, that, that is, sounds like really uh, good advice. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of business and finance today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were just getting started? The value of time. I think that uh, when you're young, it's really hard uh, to understand what 20 years can do in the investment world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very easy to get wound up in what happens to markets today and tomorrow and whether or not they go up and down. And uh, what you learn as you get older is you have the perspective of cycles. You know what it's like to take the perspective of a broad portfolio. And you actually... uh, embrace difficult times. You embrace volatility as opportunity rather than concern. And when you're younger and you haven't been through a a downturn or a crisis, it's very easy to overreact uh, to those things. And I do think there's a reason why many of the great investors are older. And I do think it's one of the few things that you can potentially get better at as you get older because you have more pattern recognition of how things happen through, you know, a 10-year, a 10-year cycle. And I do think that the appreciation of time is really important. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with David Hunt, president and CEO of PGM. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 200 such interviews we have conducted over the past four years. Uh, you can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Bloomberg, Stitcher, Overcast, etc. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.